one of the things uh, that often I'll interact with or talk with people, even sometimes myself will even start wondering and questioning is whether or not I have real faith. You know, not just the, the faith that I say or the faith that I believe in, but you know, in those moments when you're really questioning life or you're really questioning what's going on or you're really asking some of those deep thoughts that you have, do I really have faith? That word we use is, is quite uh, uh, interesting to say faith because it can be used in a lot of different contexts. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, you know, we, we use the word flying quite a bit in, in a lot of different contexts, right? Like someone running really fast, you'll, you'll see them, you'll say, man, they're flying. But they're not really flying, they're just, they're just running, right? Uh, you might say, I'm go, you know, uh, I'm in an airplane, I'm sitting in a, a seat and I'm flying. Uh, and, and yeah, you are flying, but you're sitting in an air, uh, airplane, not really flying. Or you could say, I'm the pilot, and I am actually flying because I'm the one moving the, the, the you know, steering wheel, or I don't even know if they have a steering wheel. Anyways, joystick, whatever they got up there. Uh, <clears throat> they're the ones that are flying. But they, they, again, the, the plane is the one that's flying. You could say, well, I jumped out of a, a, a plane and I'm flying. Uh, and, and then yet you realize, well, you're not flying. You're, you know, the parachute is. And, and you know, you look and you see the birds and, and they're flying. And, and we'll come up with all new ways to, to do that. But it's amazing that we can use that same word from someone running fast to, to flying in an airplane to jumping out of flying. And, and what does that really mean? What does it mean to say flying? What does it mean to say faith? What, what, what do these words really mean? What does it really look like? James is going to get to this in, in probably the, the, the central part of his message here in James chapter 2. He's going to use it in a term more of called the idea of a saving faith. And, and he's going to use that term, and it's important that we understand this. As I mentioned already, faith <coughs> is uh, interesting when you look at the, the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, and then James, and, and how the contradiction sometimes can be baffling and difficult. And sometimes you may even hear uh, us talking here at church that it is faith alone that, that brings salvation. And this is, this is true. This is what Paul told us, that before we come to Christ, the first step, the first thing we do is to surrender in an act of faith. Paul says that if we believe, if we confess with our mouth, we shall be saved, that this is an act of faith, that righteousness comes not by what we do, but because of the, the righteousness that Jesus gave to us on the cross. And if we put our faith and trust in that, then, then we shall be saved. Yet Paul, or James picks this up, <laughs> and he talks about what does it look like after conversion? Because there's something that goes hand in hand with what Paul talks about pre-conversion to what James talks about post-conversion. And Paul, or sorry, James is fighting against this idea of just having a light faith which minimizes the necessity of works after coming to Christ. It's almost like sometimes you'd hear people say, well, you know, I asked Jesus in my heart when I was five years old and I got my little get out of jail free card and now I can go and live my life any way I want. And somehow those things are, are, don't really me measure up to, to the way that the, the Gospels and Jesus and the Old Testament, all these things talks about those who encounter Christ aren't just getting a, a, a get out of jail free card, but a transformation takes place. 
Something old is gone and something new has been, been entered in. And although we're all going to have different journeys and we're all going to look different in that, and there isn't a measuring stick to say, well, how much transformation or how much has to happen, but there has to be some transformation is what James is going to get to. He's going to make this argument in this section in kind of three different ways, but he starts out in verse 14 of James chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to it. We're going to look at this section here, an important section. And he starts out and he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That's the same question we started with. So where James is, is asking this question. And again, this is a very, very important question that James is asking as he's going to lay this out here in a few minutes. And it's important that he asks this, and it's important that we talk about this and we don't get these things confused. Again, nowhere is James saying that you have to earn your salvation. Nowhere is James saying you have to clean yourself up before you come to God. Nowhere is James saying that if you go to church so many times, then you will be good and God will then give you all the good things. What James is saying that if you claim to have a saving faith, it's going to look different in the way that you live your life after that fact. You see, we all can say that, you know what, hey, uh, you know, I, I've been flying and, or I've been, been on a plane or I've done all these things, but the actual only ones that are flying, we would say, are, 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 are the ones maybe that hey, crazy ones that jump out of planes, maybe we say they're flying for a little bit, or birds or whatever. Like, like there, there's, there's only so many that we can actually say are flying in that moment. And so James is trying to get this settled here, try to ask this question. And so at first it does appear that he's saying something different, but he's not saying that. He's making this case that faith is going to actually impact a person's actions. It's going to actually have fruit to it. There's going to be something that we're going to see in the matter of that. So he's going to make this point in three different arguments as we go through this. First, he's going to say our, our saving faith should show compassion. That if your faith doesn't show compassion, maybe you have a different faith than, than what maybe James is talking about. Maybe we should talk about that. That faith is more than just knowledge. And then finally, there's Old Testament examples proving that faith required action. So let's take a look at this. First in 15 and 17, he starts out in a hypothetical situation. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. Now, again, it's an interesting concept that James uses the concept or the idea of something being dead because Paul said the exact same thing pre-conversion about the way our lives lived, that we were dead in our transgressions. We were dead in our sins. He, he basically said we were a two by four thinking that somehow we'll produce leaves and branches and fruit. We're dead. There's nothing to us. And yet by the grace of God given to us, he made us alive in Christ. And so James, in a sense, even though James was probably written before Paul in this, but the same idea written by the Holy Spirit given to us is saying the same thing, that, that if that is true, if we have become alive in Christ through our faith, then there should be evidence of that. 
Because if there's no evidence of that, we are just now more or less revealing the fact that we are still dead because there's nothing transformation has taken place. Now, in this hypocritical situation, in this illustration, James is basically saying that, hey, we come to church, we gather, we break bread, we worship, we're in community, and we see somebody in need, and we don't care about it. Now, he's not, he's not pr- producing an idea that we all should share everything. He's not saying that everyone should give everything, everything should be equal. This is not an economic plan he's talking about here. He's talking about the person that sees a need and he walks away from it by not caring one bit about helping that need. There's something broken in that. There, there, there's something off in that. When this happens, we, there's something, something wrong about someone's faith that can say, I don't care about someone else's suffering when I see it. And that lack of compassion is what James comes to and properly says, well, what good's your faith then? What's good your faith if you can't even have compassion for your brother and sister when you see their need and you just walk away from it? It's a good question. It's a difficult one. It's hard. But this is what James is asking. There's something about saving faith that should require us to have compassion. You see, we can talk a good game, but we actually might be in spiritual trouble when we lack compassion for those that are in need. Again, we can, we can bottle ourselves down. We can get overwhelmed and think that we have to give everything. We have to do everything. We have to help every single situation, every single need. And again, that's not what James is saying. What James is ultimately saying is that if, if, if you are presented in your face with a, a, a need and you choose to walk away from that, there's something missing in that, in that understanding of what saving faith is. Well, he continues on in this idea of compassion and action, and now he moves into this idea that information alone won't save you. And I've shared with you a few times leading up to this as one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Uh, it found in verse 19, but it says in 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Pretty powerful statement in this. And then he goes on and says in 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and you shudder. What James is basically saying that there is not one demon who's an atheist. Because the demons know that God is one. They know that God created the universe. They know that God sent their son to Jesus. They know that God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They would even know that God or Jesus was born of a virgin birth, died on a cross, and was raised again. The demons believe in all the same stuff that we believe in. Yet there's something different, obviously, about the demons than hopefully us. There's something different. There's something else that must accompany our belief in knowledge more so than just I know who God is and I believe who God is, but that somehow that has to change my life. That's the difference, is that the demons don't surrender to Jesus or to God. 
They don't say, I will now follow him. I want to be more like him. I want to, to, to turn away or use the word repent away from other ideologies or beliefs or, or, or ways to live life or any other kingdoms that may be created because I want to pursue the kingdom of God. Demons don't say this. They don't do that. But they know who God is. They could probably answer the, the questions a lot better than we do in our, in our classes and Sunday schools and all those different times when all the questions come up. They can answer those. But they don't have that same faith. <laughs> it is one thing, again, using this illustration of, of flying, it's one thing again to say, well, I believe in this parachute will hold me. It's another quite a thing to do to, to jump out of a plane and trust it. Remember one time I was uh, riding uh, <coughs> or carrying my son when he was real young uh, in a little red wagon flyer. We were kind of going through the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, as, as a young dad, I thought it'd be cool not only just to pull my son, but to get in, my, in the wagon with him as we were going down hills. And we would ride together. And, you know, he was, you know, thinking this was fun. I thought this was great. Mom wasn't around, so everything was perfect. <laughs> And so I remember one time we were doing that, and then all of a sudden a truck was coming up. And again, I could tell you, and there would be not a doubt in my mind that that truck was bigger than, than me in a red wagon. And I'd be a fool if I didn't do something about that. You see, at some point I had to stop, I had to move myself out of the way, I had to let the truck pass. Because that belief and knowledge of knowing the truck was greater than me caused me to react to that. You know, when you're sitting in an airplane and you know the plane is going down, you're going to have to make a decision to say, do I trust the parachute? Do I believe in that? Do I put my faith in that? Do I bet my life on it? This is the thing that separates what, what a, a demon would believe versus what James is talking about saving faith. You see, even when Paul told the, the jailer in uh, the Philippine jailer, Philippine, sorry, uh, Philippian jailer, what must it be to be saved? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Uh, Paul's not just saying, well, you just have to say a prayer and then, and then just go live your life. That word believe in is, is a word that says you are putting your faith on, you're resting everything on that object. And that object is Jesus. And resting now in that Jesus, we now become part of his family and his orientation and our identity becomes a part of him. So Paul is saying the same things as James would have been saying, but he's talking about it from the, from the pre. And now James is talking about the post and how these two things work hand in hand. And so he continues on now <coughs> in verse 20 and he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish people? That faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scriptures were fulfilled when they said Abraham believed in God and was counted him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was also Rahab, the prostitute justified by fit works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so is faith apart from works is dead. Now, I don't know if James is getting ticked off or he's just, you know, wanted to be sarcastic in the sense he calls us foolish people. 
I think there's plenty of times when we deserve that title because we're stubborn and we want to do things our way or we want to believe things our way. But James is basically saying, look, if you lack compassion for somebody in need, if all you do is believe what the demons believe but don't change or or do anything different, then you're a foolish person. And if you want to keep being a foolish person, let me now show you another example of from the very Old Testament, the very patriarchs, the, the very uh, uh, stories that the Jewish people had believed in and, and who Yahweh was. Uh, uh, Abraham and Rahab are connected in the fact that not only did they believe, but they also acted upon those things. Now think about the story of Abraham. <coughs> We find him in the, in the Hall of Fame chapter of, of Hebrews 11, and it says uh, that he uh, uh, started out in his faith, he, he, he moved in his faith, he sacrificed in his faith. <coughs> he was told by God that he was going to be a father even late in his age, and that his descendants would be greater than the stars in the universe. Even so, to the point where him and his wife laughed at God because of, of how old they were. Yet it was the him that then put his faith and belief in that. Even though it hadn't happened yet, even though all he heard was God's word spoken to him, he put his faith and trust in that. He would, as Paul does in Romans, say even before he was circumcised, even before he did any religious act or any follow-up of good works, it was credited to him as righteous because he believed in the word of God. That's this pre-salvation. That's that pre-understanding of faith alone. But now what James understands, it says, but not only do we have that part of Abraham, we also have the faithfulness and obedience and good works of Abraham, specifically in the the story of him and, and Isaac. Which again, it's a crazy story. It's one that's hard to fathom why God would do the things that he did or ask him to do. But we see in what God was doing was showing us what ultimately a sacrifice would look like, ultimately what it would be for, for a firstborn to be the one to, to, to cover the sins of, of all of us. And in that moment, yet God was continually with Abraham in that, even to the point when Abraham took Isaac and his servants were there. He said, they told his servants to stay here as my son and I will go worship and we will return. Even though God was asking him to sacrifice his son, Abraham still had faith, as Hebrews tells us, that God was going to raise him from the dead. That God was going to stay true to his promise and so much so that he was going to continue to be faithful in what God asked him to do. And so Abraham's story is a story about faith in believing God's word, but it also tells us his entire journey and how he continued to live out his belief in a way that was evident in his good works. Then you have the the story of Rahab. She was a prostitute living in Jericho. And yet, even though she was a prostitute Gentile, she had heard over and over and over again these stories of people coming to Jericho talking about this people group, the Israels, the Jews who were coming and their God was doing these amazing miracles. And as these amazing miracles were going on over and over and over again, she kept hearing these stories as I'm sure people were traveling into Jericho telling that somewhere along the line she believed in those stories 
that God was who he was, that Israel's God was the one and only true God. Now again, you look at these contrasting stories. Abraham heard directly from God. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he believed in God. Rahab was just hearing the testimonies of others, and she believed in God. So that when the spies showed up, as it tells us again in Hebrews, when the spies showed up, she welcomed the spies, and she helped the spies continue to, to do the, the mission that they were called on to do, and so that she was protected because she acted on that belief she had heard of the stories of Yahweh who was coming with the Israelites. And so from Abraham to Rahab and all in between, there's not a person here that would be more considered a saint or patriarch than Abraham, the father of the Jews. We could put him here. And the world would put Rahab all the way down here, a Gentile prostitute. And yet what God and, and, and James is saying, they're both on level grounds when it comes to this idea of their belief and their, and their action because of that. And so whether you consider yourself more like Abraham or you consider yourself more like Rahab, it doesn't really matter. Everything in between is about believing and putting our faith in God in a way that causes us to act and to respond, that causes us to do good works, that causes us to, 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 to be able to be faithful in obedience. And there's a, a key phrase that James picks up here when he talks about Abraham and Rahab, and he calls it that they were a friend of God. A friend of God. I like that idea to think that God would call me a friend. That God would see me as a friend. It's the same idea that Jesus said in John chapter 15, you are my friends. If you do what I command, and I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my Father, I've made, made known to you. Jesus, in the same exact phrase here, is saying the same thing. I've made known to you the purposes, the understandings, who God is. And when you respond and you, you act accordingly in those things, you are now in a relationship of intimate friendship with me and with God because you are faithful in, in, in doing the things that, that matter to God. You surrender to him in a way to say, Lord, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And so this marriage of belief and action creates this intimate relationship with Jesus. And that's what it is. It's, it's a marriage of, of these two things. You know, we live in a world where it's like, well, I, I, you only can believe this and you have to reject that. And, and, and this has to be true and that has to be wrong. And many times I'm telling people, both things can be true at the same time. That is possible. And both these things are true at the same time. It is surrender and faith alone in Christ that brings salvation. But it results in us following through with doing good things and good works according to the good purpose that God has for us. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 are all about, right? We know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace we've been saved alone. It's not of our own good works so that none of us can boast. And then, and then verse 10 fills in and says, and yet you were created as a masterpiece to do good works. 
And so, so Paul's saying the exact same thing. He's, he's just more emphasizing on the pre, where James is talking more about the post. And so we, we come here and we say, well, what would James tell us today? What would James tell us today? If he looked at our lives, if he looked at us corporately, we tell us that real faith reacts to what has been received. And so he'd be concerned about how are we reacting. That's what he'd be concerned about. He'd leave Paul to all the discussions about sanctification and justification and all the theological ideas of what salvation looks like, but he would come to us and he'd start examining our lives and saying, let me see what you say you believe. I think it's Missouri's the show me state, right? It's that idea, show it to me. Show, show, show me what you believe. Don't, don't tell me what you believe. Show me what you believe. He'd probably bring up some other ideas like our joy, our anger, our favoritisms, stuff he's already talked about. How, how are we having joy in our trials? Are we losing our temper and getting angry? Are we showing favoritism? He'd probably ask us questions about are we taking care of the widows and the orphans, the, the people that are most vulnerable? Do we care about them? He'd be looking at these ideas by saying a saving faith is a faith that responds in faithfulness and good works. And so when we ask ourselves these questions, do I have real faith? Do I have a a saving faith? Look at your life to say, in, in what areas would there be evidence of a transformation taking place? What areas... Would your life look more different because of Jesus entering into your life and reflecting Jesus than if, if you never even knew Jesus? How different is your life than those who are the demons that know the truth about God and yet choose not to do anything about it? What level of compassion do we have when we see people in need? Does it move us? Does it change us? Does it cause us to give?